So, before I start, we're going to have a meditation tonight, and how to do it, and or how not to do it. And but I wanted to talk about the super moon that happened just a couple days ago, which was really interesting. But in Buddhism, it's very significant as well, um, and it is significant because it is the it's the it's the moon of July. And why that is important is because the Buddha achieved his nirvana on the full moon day of May. And for 49 days, he spent it in retreat, seven days at a time, under specific trees. Seven trees, seven days. He gave his very first talk as the Buddha on the full moon day of July to the five ascetics, one of them achieving nirvana simply listening to his talk. It is also the beginning of the rains retreat in the Theravada tradition, Theravada being the early Buddhist tradition. And the monks and the nuns go into retreat for three months. And the reason for that is, in India, this is monsoon season, and a lot of creatures are sort of roaming around trying to avoid the water. And if the monks were to go from village to village sharing the Dharma, they would kill a lot of creatures. It also it allows the monks to get together and practice together and share the Dharma together and study together before they go back out into the world and share the Dharma and encourage people to end their suffering and get enlightened. When they come out of their three-month retreat, it's called katina. It's a katina ceremony, and it's a wonderful time to go to a Buddhist temple because they have a lot of food. (laughs) And it's really good. The members of the temple will sew a robe, an honorary robe, which is offered to a monk that has been elected by the sangha, the group of other monks, to accept this robe. So it's a very special robe that can never be thrown away. It needs to be used until its last thread. And when you are no longer able to wear it, then you use it as a bed sheet. When it starts to ravel as a bed sheet, you use it as a rug. And it keeps getting smaller and smaller, but the uses become more imaginative all the time. And, and so that's why a lot of Buddhists... Um, on the full moon of July uh, are at the temples. And I posted on my Facebook page a wonderful picture of monks in the Theravada tradition, a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery, which is in Northern California. And they were on a platform outside with the full moon behind them. And they were reciting uh, the Pali chants for the, for the very special ceremony of the full moon. So I wanted to start with that just to let you know, that something means something to somebody all the time. (laughs) Maybe not to you, but somebody else finds it very significant. (laughs) So meditation, this is a really interesting uh, topic because it is one of the most important things we do uh, as a Buddhist. It is called uh, cultivation. We're cultivating our mind. We are ultimately getting rid of the bad and only making the good available. 
the bad being lust, greed, hatred, and delusion, the good being love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. 44 different techniques, four kinds of mindfulness meditation, 40 kinds of tranquility meditation. So I'm going to start with tranquility meditation and go into some of the models we use to understand our experience in meditation. Uh, I brought my Zafu with me. This was a gift, so it's a bit more ornate than a traditional Zafu, but it's a circular cushion uh, found in the Japanese zendos, and uh, they are filled with either kapok or barley corn husks. Um, I started out with kapok, and, and it's a very firm, almost cotton-like material that goes inside. Uh, and then as I progressed, I ended up sitting on the barley corn husks. So rather than me taking the shape of the cushion, now the cushion takes the shape of me. And I find it to be more comfortable. I started out with two cushions, sitting on two, because my knees wouldn't touch the ground. I started meditating at 28, so I was not as flexible as I thought I should be, or could be, and I had been working out for a couple of years in the gym, so my muscles were rather taut, which is not necessarily the best thing for meditation. So I started with two cushions, and, and I started with my hands on my knees, and this is the mudra I chose. Mudra is our hand gestures. Uh, the reason I chose this mudra is because I read a yoga journal and saw somebody sitting like this and thought it was cool. <laughs> and it seemed to work fine for me, and other people thought I knew what I was doing when I had my hands like this. Uh, a more traditional way would be to have your, if you're right-handed, have your left hand on the bottom, your right hand on top, and simply touch your thumbs together. It creates zero, it creates emptiness, which is theoretically what you want to experience, not what you want to be. Uh, and the reason if you're right-handed that your left hand is on the bottom is you're letting your weaker hand now support the stronger hand. Because the right hand, in my case, being right-handed, does all the work, and the left hand is a slacker. So I put it to work. Um, when you're sitting on your cushion on the floor, the idea is to find your center of balance, which is very difficult. It took me literally a couple years to feel comfortable sitting cross-legged on the floor. Uh, number one, I had to face the issue of having a little older body, but then having a stiff body, and then not really understanding what the center felt like. So uh, I don't care how good the meditation teacher is, they can't tell you how the center is supposed to feel to you. Um, so I would do uh, something like I'd be sitting on the cushion, and I'd start this sort of circular motion, and then I would just sort of come to a place of stillness. And in a way, I was trying to use gravity and my sitting to, to find that place of balance. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. <clears throat> they, they say the best way to sit is with a relaxed belly. And for men, that's no problem at all. But for women, sometimes it can be disconcerting to have a belly. 
And, and what you want to do is you want to relax all your stomach muscles and make your belly really big, and it tends to lower your center of gravity and make you more stable. I know if you're going to join the Marines, they tell you to suck in your tummy and stick out your chest, and that's exactly what you don't want to do if you meditate. What to do with the eyes? Some people like to close the eyes. I'm an eye closer. I prefer not to see all the people jumping around in the room because it's hard for humans to sit still. And they'll be scratching and moving and and doing all sorts of things, and it can become a distraction to see that. So I close my eyes um, unless I'm tired. And then I will open them and let some light stimulate my brain to sort of wake me up, and then I'll close them again. One of the best questions I was ever asked about walking meditation was, do you do walking meditation with your eyes closed or your eyes open? (laughs) I suggested open. (laughs) But that's just me. What do you do with your mouth? You want to keep your mouth closed. You want to breathe through your nose. And you want to keep your tongue on touching the palate, the top of your mouth. It prevents you from having to swallow quite as often. And and it prevents you from swallowing quite as loud. It, It sounds odd, but when you have 50 people meditating and it's rather quiet and people start, you know, gulping down their saliva, it can it can be distracting. You know, and, 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 and what you don't want to do is you don't want to hold anything in. Like, I, there will be people who want to cough. And they'll not cough because they don't want to disturb anybody. But eventually they have to cough. <clears throat> and it's, it's like five times as bad as if they had just coughed in the first place. So it's a huge cough. And it really, you, you sort of wonder if the person now is medically okay. <laughs> And uh, so if you have to cough, just cough. If you need to, you know, clear your throat, you just clear your throat. Uh, it's, it's okay to make sounds. One of the stories of the Buddha when he was, uh, when he was uh, a prince, Siddhartha, his father wanted him to uh, have a party, so he invited uh, a, a bunch of um, women to play musical instruments and dance and just keep his fancy focused at the at the. Uh, um, the palace and not out in the streets. And so uh, it, it was getting late and it was getting late and then all of a sudden everybody started to fall asleep. So now we have all these women who are sleeping and snoring and in odd postures and stuff. And the Buddha looked at that and, and realized that uh, beauty uh, was an illusion. And I, I thought that was good because it, um, uh, I've been to department stores and I've seen the cosmetics counter where those illusions are created, and it is an amazing thing. And, and so for me, that sort of balance comes into play. And, and the body is not necessarily a wonderful thing to be around all the time. A friend of mine just did that Spanish pilgrimage, 500 miles, I think, 30 days and stuff, and she would sleep in hostels with all these people. Sometimes she'd be sleeping with 100 people, and They'd be snoring and making all sorts of noise and gagging and almost dying. And I said, wouldn't you just rather have gone outside in a tent and listened to the birds chirp? Wouldn't that have been better? No, I I like to be with the people, she said. (laughs) So um, there's good and bad in both ways. But when our bodies make noise, they just make noise, and we just, you know, go on to the next thing.
so your belly's big, your hands are in a mudra, you know, your, your eyes are closed. You want to keep your back straight. In a chair, what you'd want to do is not use the backrest. You'd want to sit about a third of the way forward and have your feet flat on the ground and have your legs form sort of an L kind of thing. And you'd be sitting like this, which is really uncomfortable. But see, that keeps you awake. It's a good thing to be uncomfortable because most of our life is uncomfortable. So now we get to experience it in controlled environments. And if you don't want to do that, you can lean back. It's okay. But the idea is to have a straight back. And one of the ways I found to get a straight back is this. If I'm sitting on the floor, I'll bend over and I'll bring my head back. And I'll look at the ceiling and then I'll bring my head forward. And what that does is that stretches my spine, bringing my head back. And then I'm just bringing it forward and I'm like in a perfect position. But again, that perfect position is only temporary. So what you'll find if you get into meditation is that you are always sort of micromanaging your meditation posture. You're shifting a little bit. Sometimes I found if I brought my hands back or brought them forward, I could change my my, my posture just enough to be comfortable. What I imagined myself doing was being under a waterfall. So we have this waterfall that we call gravity, and we're sitting there. If we're sitting perfectly straight, the waterfall or the gravity can actually help us stay upright. But if you get a little too far forward or a little too far back or a little too far to the side, gravity then works against us and pushes us down. So the idea of finding this place of balance is to, is to simply rest on your skeleton without having to use your muscles. If you're using your muscles, you're going to tire quickly and it'll be very uncomfortable. But if you can find that place of balance and simply use gravity and your, and your skeleton, you can sit for surprisingly long periods of time without too much discomfort at all. But there will always be discomfort ultimately in the beginning because we uh, haven't experienced the techniques yet necessary to transcend the discomfort of having a body. That comes with time. It is possible people can sit for days at a time and not feel pain. But in the beginning, the pain and the discomforts comes rather quickly. And, and what that taught me was the very first principle of Buddhism, that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And every time I sat to meditate, it was proven to be true. And yet somehow I continued to do that, not out of a masochistic tendency, I don't think, but simply wondering if it would be possible to get beyond that. And, and, and sure enough, ultimately that was the case. So now we have to talk about, well, how do you get beyond that? How do you get beyond the discomfort of having a body sitting on a floor or in a chair for 20 minutes, 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half. Is it possible to sit in a rather comfortable way and not move for an hour and a half? And it is. But there are techniques that you use. You don't tough it out. You don't say, I'm going to do it and I don't care what happens to me. That is absolutely the wrong technique and you will die.
<laughs> you have to be soft. You have to be flexible. You have to get into the flow, if you will, and not stand apart from it. The oak tree doesn't bend, it breaks. The bamboo bends and doesn't break. And we have both in our meditation center, and we have broken branches, and we have the bamboo which just waves so nicely on a windy day. And, and that's what we want our bodies to do. I'm going to talk first about the samatha meditation and the 40 different kinds of samatha meditation, but not all of the 40 kinds because we don't have that much time. But some of them are called a kasina. And a, and a kasina is used in meditation to get your mind focused. So let's talk about the earth kasina. What you would do is you'd be sitting on the earth, on the ground, and hopefully you'd be sitting in front of a patch of just dirt, simple dirt. And you take your finger and you draw a circle in the dirt. And then you would sit back five to ten feet and stare at the center of the circle you have just drawn in the dirt. And you would say, earth, 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 earth. That would be your mantra as you looked at the circle. Over and over and over again, you would say that. You would close your eyes to see if you could see the circle with your eyes closed. Oftentimes, not even close. You'd open your eyes again. Earth, earth, earth. Sooner or later, eventually, you will be able to close your eyes and see the circle drawn in the earth. Now, you say, how can that be? Well, if, have you ever memorized a word? And you say, milk. And you say it over and over and over again. And then, somehow, you can recollect the word milk, and it comes back again. Without being printed, without, with, without visual interpretation, it's simply in your head. We can do visuals in the same way. We can bring them inside our head. Once you get that inside your head, then the idea is to make it really big and really small. You want to make the circle as big as the universe or as small as an atom. And you're doing this with your mind, and the circle becomes, has more clarity than the actual circle that's drawn in the dirt. It becomes more real inside your head, which shouldn't surprise us because we create our world anyway, it's said in Buddhism, and it seems pretty real, but it's all in our head, so now we're focusing on simply a circle in the earth. Dharmakaya is a Buddhist organization from Thailand. They have a temple in Azusa, and I don't know if they still do, but they did use crystal balls in the same way. And they would put a crystal ball on a little stand and they'd sit in front of it and they'd look at the crystal ball. And I'm not sure what word they used, maybe a Thai word for a crystal ball. And they would get that crystal ball inside their head. Then the idea was to get it from your head into your belly and let it rest there. Cool. So I was talking to one of the monks who has this as his object of meditation. And I said to him, how long did it take you to get the ball in your belly? And he said, 10 years. 
So it takes a while to do this, uh, but it is possible. And the benefits are pleasure and peace and happiness and joy. It's called summit meditation, tranquility meditation. Now let me give you a model that I like to use in explaining what's going on. It's called the four jhanas, J-H-A-N-A-S. There are eight, but four of them are formless, which is simply more philosophical and not quite as useful, but four of them are form, and I'm going to talk about the four jhanas in form. You're sitting and you have chosen as your object of meditation the counting of breath. And you're sitting on the floor and you're counting your breath one to ten and ten to one, one to ten and ten to one. And now the first two aspects of jhana arise in your mind. Applied thought and sustained thought. That what you've done is you've fixed your mind on the object of meditation, which is breath counting, and you have applied your thought to that, and now you are holding it there. And this is the first jhana. It has five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The most important factors are the first two factors. Those will be obvious. The other ones are there in potential and ultimately in realization as well. So you're really doing good at this. You've been doing this for a year now and your applied thought and sustained thought. And finally you have come to the place where your mind simply rests on the object of meditation. There's no will or intention on your part any longer for that to occur. When that happens, you have gone into the second jhana. The second jhana has three characteristics, not five. What's left behind is applied thought and sustained thought. Now you have a greater sense of physical pleasure, a greater sense of mental happiness, and the beginning of balance or equanimity. It's interesting to me when I think about Buddhist meditation if you're gaining anything, you're doing it wrong. Buddhist meditation is about getting rid of stuff, not getting stuff. It is a path of renunciation. The difference between physical pleasure and happiness is a subtle one, but there are aspects of, of meditation practice that, that create tingling sensations and and sensations of pleasure and there's sometimes the spine is almost alive with a light they call it kundalini serpent energy and your body just sort of glows and it's it's a great feeling it's absolutely free you can't get busted for it and i found when that happened to me that i didn't want to go any further i just wanted to stay in my pleasure and i could hardly wait to meditate to go to the zendo and get into that place and all the monks and all the books say, words of warning, here we go, don't get attached, don't get attached. But I paid little heed to that, and I, I got attached to it, and I enjoyed it. But then it went away. See, this stuff never stays like that forever. And another word of warning is that if you try to re-experience the same thing twice, you will fail miserably. 
I can remember having just an amazing physical experience while meditating. It's changed the way I thought about myself and the world around me. And I worked for another six months to experience it again. And I failed. I couldn't do it. I could never experience that again. And the reason for that is it takes a certain combination of factors for those things to occur. And those combination of factors only happen once. Everything in our life only happens once. I continued with the breath and I started to let go of the counting now. The counting, it, didn't, it wasn't necessary because I was just resting on it. I had this really strong, strong sense of pleasure. In order to go forward, what I needed to do was let go of something. And what I needed to do was let go of pleasure. But if you think about it, you can't let go of pleasure because pleasure just happens. So I needed to let go of my attachment to pleasure. I needed to let go of wanting it to be there. And I was successful, and my pleasure went away. Now, I was in the next place, and I had two characteristics. I had happiness, and I had equanimity. Happiness is more subtle than pleasure. If you imagine a small forest pond, and you have a rather large rock, and you throw it into the pond, it creates ripples, big ripples. But if you throw a pebble into the pond, it creates small ripples. And, and that's what happiness feels like. Why do we want to get rid of the pleasure? Why do we want to get rid of the happiness? Because they agitate our mind in a good way. But they agitate our mind, and it doesn't allow our mind to reflect reality the way it really is. And the idea is to be able to be this sort of mirror image of what's going on out there without any good parts or bad parts or any added parts. So it's difficult to let go of happiness now. But let me assure you, if you find out how to let go of pleasure, you're letting go of pain as well. If you find out how to let go of happiness, you're letting go of sadness as well. You may not want to let go of pleasure, but I'm sure you want to let go of pain. And the idea in Buddhism is to come to a perfect place of balance, right in the middle. It's not being a vegetable. It's not a flat line of any kind. It's, it's a rarefied state for a human to be in, this perfect place of balance. To be able to experience the world the right way it really is without attachment or aversion, which is the other side. Now, they say, and, and for me, it's hard to know if I was able to experience this or not, but, if, but they say the, the last and final characteristic of jhana is equanimity, this perfect place of balance, where now you have figured out how to let go of the attachment to happiness and the aversion to sadness, the attachment to pleasure, the aversion to pain, and you come to this place of, of equanimity. Of, of just perfect balance. And then the gong rings, you see, and then you have to <coughs> reconstitute and become who you were before. And given enough time, you forget all of this stuff. And it seems like somebody did it, but it probably wasn't you, and maybe you should continue your practice. Ultimately, the idea is to be there all the time. 
to be, that is your normal waking state, to be in the world, in that place of balance and equanimity. It's a hard sell. I, I don't think if you have a fairly good life, you'd want to sort of give it all up for balance. Uh, if you have a pretty bad life, you probably would want to give it all up for balance. You might, might, maybe if you found yourself in the Middle East right now, with all the chaos and, and hardships that are occurring over there, balance might be the perfect refuge for you. So the Buddha did this and got to that place, and, and he was the best, and he always did it better than everybody else. Uh, and, and what I found from this model of the of jhanas and, and the four jhanas, and it, it allowed you to intellectually understand that, that meditation sort of works in stages, if you will. That's the intellectual model. The realistic and, and ultimate model is that there's no beginning and there's no end. There are no stages. There's no progress. There's no failure. There's no success. You're simply doing it. And even in the four jhanas, when you see the five characteristics and then the three and the two and the one, those aren't linear. Those don't all happen in order. Those just sort of happen out of order sometimes, and you're never quite sure what's going to happen when you sit down to meditate. But that's pretty much the excitement that comes out of meditation. If you can have any excitement at all, you don't know what's going to happen. But you do it anyway. And if nothing happens, you're not disappointed because there isn't anything that's really nothing. Something went on, but it just didn't catch your attention. And if something magical happens, fantastic, but you probably won't be able to share it with anybody because they won't understand what the heck you're talking about. They might think you're a little odd after all. So it's a very personal journey, and it's a journey that happens on the inside rather than the outside. So you walk into a meditation center and you see them all sitting down and it looks like they're doing nothing. It just looks like they're sitting there doing nothing. But internally they are working so hard on getting to that place of balance and centeredness and that place of present moment experience. Now it's said in the Vasudhi Manga there are certain stages in breath meditation which I thought were fascinating. The first stage is using an intellectual model to tether your attention to the object of meditation, so counting. So you're using concepts. The second level would be to let go of the conceptual tether and simply come to the sensation of breath. That's a deeper, more focused place to be. And third, last but not least, is the representation of breath. That there's an internal representation of breath, according to the Vasudhi Magga, the Path of Purification, a 900-page Buddhist meditation manual. So I'm reading this darn thing, and I'm going, there's a representation of breath, and, and your consciousness becomes that representation. And for the life of me, I could not figure out how to look inside. I had never looked inside before. My eyes only could look outside. So I said, how do you look inside? And I asked a variety of teachers, and none of them could give me a satisfactory answer of how to start looking inside. So it was left up to me, and this is what I came up with. 
I remember it long ago when we had flash cubes and film in cameras that when they took your picture, there was an after image. You could actually see the flash cube for a few moments before it faded away. And I thought, isn't that interesting that I have that ability to see an after image in the same way I have the ability to hear a tune even if it's not being played, because there's an afterimage of the tune in my consciousness as well. So how could I get to that place where I could look inside and not have to shoot myself with a flash cube each time I wanted to go there? And then I remembered that if you squint your eyelids really hard and relax them, you see a thousand points of light. Nothing to do with George Bush, the first. (laughs) So I I set about in the rather dark atmosphere of the Zendo, squinting and relaxing, squinting and relaxing, creating a thousand points of light, watching them fade away, creating a thousand points of light, watching them fade away, hoping nothing medically was going to (laughs) happen that was irreversible. And then I became aware of something going on inside my consciousness. And I couldn't really put my finger on it. It was more like an archetypal kind of experience. There was form, there was movement, there was color, but it didn't tie into anything externally. It was internal. So I, I continued to read and continued to do my squinting. And what the book said was this, that... When you get to this place of becoming aware of the representation of breath, and oftentimes it was defined, according to the Vasudhimaga, as being fireflies, thousand points of light, or cotton, cotton balls, or lava, flowing lava. It had a variety of forms and shapes and colors. What happens at that point is you're no longer able to see shouldn't be much of a surprise, but you're no longer able to hear as well. What has happened is all your sense doors have closed down. So you can't feel, you can't hear, you can't see, you can't taste, you can't smell. You have now gone to a completely internal reality, a completely internal experience, which is really a cool place to go for a while because it gives you a break. We were talking about how much information, how fast things are moving, how we're trying to keep up with everything. And here you are, and you've closed everything down for a few moments. And you have this completely internal experience, and you have a great sense of physical pleasure and a great sense of mental bliss and happiness as this is going on. But you can't stay there. It said you can only ultimately stay there seven days and seven nights. If you stay there eight days, you die. So see, you always have to come back. You can't live in these places. And I know a lot of people talk about, I want to live in these places. It'd be so cool to live in these places. We get to do that after we drop our bodies. Then we can live in those places for like a really long time. But while we have a body, we've got things to do. We have maintenance to perform every day. Sometimes every three or four hours, maintenance to perform because we have this body. But this is just a little vacation. I found it took a lot of energy to get there. And I was totally exhausted 
after I left the Zendo. It was just a really difficult experience to create because it was total focus and total use of physical and mental energy to get to this place. So I realized that maybe it was cool to be there, but that's probably not what I wanted to do forever. Because sometimes, and this was one of the things I found out personally, sometimes you can't turn this stuff off. So if you turn on the energy switch, and you have this sort of energy flow going through you, and then the gong rings and the energy flow is still going, and then you try to go to sleep and the energy flow is still going, and then you try to rest and the energy flow is still going, and you say, damn, I can't turn the thing off. We had a resident at our center who practiced kundalini yoga. She was up all night. <laughs> you hear her pacing back and forth, back and forth. It's like she never slept at all. And I wanted to say, maybe you don't need to do that kind of meditation. You know? <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> so we have to be cautious. We're, we're, we're doing stuff that is done by yogis in controlled environments with particular lifestyles. So most of us don't have a lifestyle that's conducive to this kind of meditation. So... Having gone there, I decided just to go back to breath counting and just do that. So now, what happens now? Well, unfortunately, I had a lot of desire and craving come up. And, and meditation is a perfect place for all the stuff to come up that you've suppressed and not looked at for years and decades. And there you are, sitting all by yourself with ten other people, and this crap comes up, and you see yourself, and there's unresolved issues you should have taken care of years ago but didn't, and now here you sit with it for a day, a week, a month. Pretty soon they become old friends. Pretty soon you've created a new relationship with them. They never seem to go away. You just change the way you relate to them in your meditation practice. But there's a whole purging, a purification process that occurs as you continue your meditation. So now I've got this craving and desire stuff coming up. And I don't know if you remember this, but Westwood Boulevard, they used to have Rhino Records. And it was a wonderful place. And this wasn't the, the new one that closed, but this was the old one. And it was just filled and filled with CDs. And the blue section was just amazing. And so I would fantasize about going to Rhino Records after meditation and just enjoying myself going through the hundreds, if not thousands, of CDs to find the one or two that I was really didn't want or know about, but I'd love to have. I found that my meditation practice became very expensive. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was spending a lot of money on CDs. <laughs> and I said to myself, this isn't going to really work either, because I don't know if I can afford to keep going there. So, so I, I saw how the mind works. I saw it really clearly. You're sitting there just minding your own business, if you will, and you get bored and you start thinking about stuff and how much fun it would be and where to go and how to do it. And, and pretty soon, you're going there and doing it. it. You've just sort of like programmed yourself to do it. So then I decided if these thoughts of Rhino Records or accumulation occur... I would simply watch them, but I would definitely 
focus back on my breath. I would intentionally go back to my breath. I wouldn't get caught in that cluster of thoughts that drove me to the record store after meditation. And that worked pretty good for a long time. Now we're talking 10 years. Okay. And then I said, but you know, even that's difficult. Even that's difficult. I've been meditating for a really long time. What, what, what would be the easiest form of meditation that I could do, that I could do for the rest of my life? And I came up with it. It was a perfect solution. It's called shikantaza, just sitting. Just sitting is probably one of the most difficult kinds of meditation to do because you just sit and you turn yourself into a transparent pane of glass and you don't hide from anything and you don't attach to anything and you have aversion to nothing. You simply let everything arise and exist as long as it wants to and then it goes away and you don't interfere. You don't cling or hold or push away. So the the helicopter is flying over our meditation center and my eardrums vibrating. I imagine it's a police helicopter, car chase. And then it goes away. I'll never know what it was other than a helicopter, but it, was it even really a helicopter or was it just simply my eardrum vibrating? And it reminded me of what a helicopter sounds like. And then I had this visual image, and then I had this story, and then it died. And I went on to the next thing, and to the next thing, and to the next thing. And there's always a next thing, except sometimes you get to a place in between the thoughts. There's a little space in between each thought. Sometimes it's not very big at all. Sometimes it's a little bigger where nothing happens. There's nothing. And so you get to this little nothing space and you, and then something else happens. But you start to see, with enough focus, you start to see the birth and death of every thought. You start to see that every thought does have a, a specific beginning. Generally speaking, when we become aware of our thoughts, they've already been there for a while, we sort of come in in the middle just to assess them and see if they're any good and want to go along with them. But you can actually, in your meditation practice, see where they come from and where they go. And they come from nothing, and they go back to nothing. But while they're there, they're really something. And they help define who we are and how we experience the world. Can you imagine, if you're able to see your world arise, exist, and pass away, what kind of insight that gives you into the nature of your experience of this world? And would you ever think about it in the same way again if you saw the beginning of your world? And people, ever since they could think, have been wondering and debating on how it all started. And here you are, sitting quietly, minding your own business, watching the beginning of creation. Now, that may sound a little overly profound, but the Buddha said, this entire world exists in this fathom-long body. A fathom is fingertip to fingertip. He said the entire world exists in this fathom-long body. Well, that's a trip. So what's going on out there? 
none of us know. Imagine yourself as a spacesuit, and you have two little holes cut in it for your eyes, and one little hole cut in for your nose, and then one for your mouth, and then your hands, the spacesuit's a little bit thinner, so you're able to feel texture and firmness and softness. But we can only view the world from our spacesuit. We can never take our spacesuit off and experience the world completely which means we experience our world through our sense doors. And we were given a special gift called ego or personality, which turns out to be a funnel. At the big end of the funnel, we have all this information coming in from our sense doors, and it works its way down to the little end. And out of the little end comes the story of our life. The funnel is our ego, and it's deciding what's important and what's not important, what's important for us to survive, what's not important. You're walking down the street, you haven't had food for two days, and there's a bakery. You pass the liquor store, don't even realize it. You pass the shoe store, don't even realize it. But you're starving. In the bakery store, you're front row and center. Our ego was telling us, this is what you need to pay attention to because you have hunger. Our ego tells us what we need to pay attention to. Our ego decides what part of life we experience and what part we don't. And most of life we don't experience because it's not important to us right now. As you meditate, I think the funnel gets a little bit bigger at the small end. And more and more information becomes available to you. And you're able to see the world in a much different way. Sometimes they call them seers, S-E-E-R, spiritual person who can see things other people can't see. Not that we can't see because we lack the ability to see, but they have trained themselves to see the world in a different way. And we miss that. I think as one meditates, one starts to see how All things are connected. That would be enlightenment. I have had the direct experience of that through feeding cats. You may think that that's rather absurd, that someone who feeds cats sees how all things are connected. But ever since I started feeding those cats, special things in my life have happened. Not because of me, but because I fed the cats and feeding the cats were connected to things I had no clue were connected to them. Wow. So what else can feeding cats do? Get rid of some of your greed. Get rid of some of your hatred and change it into compassion. Get rid of a lot of your ignorance and make it wisdom. Feeding the cats have made my life so much better because feeding the cats is connected to everything all the time. Who would have thought? And I sometimes think the people that are most successful externally, most fulfilled internally, see more about things being connected rather than less. 
and realize by doing this unrelated thing, the consequences happen over here. And looking at it logically, intellectually, there's no way those two things could be connected. But the seer knows and the seer sees. And so he or she does that, and this happens. And everybody else is surprised and says, synchronicity, what good luck you have. But somehow the seer knew that was going to happen. So meditation has a lot of benefits. It allows you to see yourself being created moment by moment. It allows you to choose which self you want to manifest in speech and action and which self you don't want to manifest in speech and action. So if the kind self arises, if the generous self arises, the happy self arises, we want to share that with the world. The angry self, the hateful self, we'll just wait for that self to die. Because in our meditation practice, we have realized that everything that starts has to end. We just don't know how long it's going to take. Sometimes people can be angry for five minutes, an hour, five days. But sooner or later, the angry person dies, and somebody else takes their place. I think we should take a break now, and then I'm going to talk about mindfulness meditation and see how that works. And then put them both together and maybe just sit quietly for five minutes with ourselves here at the end. Just to see how it feels. Yeah. Thanks.